Thursday Finance with Stephen Pritchard today. Mandy Barton a little bit later on today from Centrelink. Uh, Stephen Pritchard, but what's happening with commodities and things? Are things changing just a little bit? Oh, things have changed a little bit. Um, the, the gold price was up um, 2.75% or $45.63 an ounce from last week, back above $1,705.98. So that's a nice Christmas present for those holding gold. Um, the copper... The copper price was eight thousand four hundred and sixty three dollars, which was down about one percent to buy eighty one dollars and twenty seven cents a ton. Mm-hmm. And the crude oil price was up three dollars ninety eight a barrel to eighty four dollars and sixty five cents Australian. Um, the currencies have all fallen, or the Australian dollar's fallen against all the world's major currencies. Um, we're back down to 72.7 uh, US dollars. Um, against the Great British Pound, we're down to 57.09 pence. And against the Euro, dollar, uh, the Euro we're 64.08 uh, Euro cents. So um, it's a bit more expensive to travel overseas. and uh, oh, Christmas at home. Today. And buy uh, overseas uh, gifts for importing into Australia. Oh, yes. yes is that true? Yes, yes. Plus the GST is being loaded on to those now. Um, so the, the All Ordinaries Index was um, a down 866 on the week to 5,749. So that's that's continuing to drift down like it has for the last, oh, at least the last six weeks. Um, the S&P 500 was down 37.7 points to 2,700. And the UK index was down 117 points to uh, 6,921. Okay. So the world equity markets were all a bit red this week. Okay, um, so we're not unusual in that. No, we're not unusual in that. And uh, some of the stocks that local investors hold, um, well, seem to like anyhow. Um, they're a bit of a mixed bag this week. Um, BHP was down. Was I uh, sorry? Up eighty-five cents to eighty-one dollars uh, to thirty-one dollars and eighty-three cents. And just remember that BHP share buybacks coming up. And I think you have to have your Election forms in some day next week. Um, CBA continued its drifting down again, so it was down to $70 exactly at the close yesterday, which is down another $2.43 on the week. Uh, NIB uh, continued to drift down as well, um, so it's down $0.04 cents to $4.94. And Telstra, surprisingly, was up uh, $0.06 cents on the week on $3.02. And that's probably because they, they, they announced that um, they're going to um, have increased charges for people who use the 5G network. Um, so then the petrol prices in Newcastle, dollar uh, thirty-seven point nine, which was down three point seven three point seven cents on the week, and in Sydney was a dollar twenty-three, which is down two point four cents on the week. So the petrol prices is, is drifting down as we run up to the Christmas uh, the Christmas holiday period. And in Newcastle, the diesel price was a dollar fifty-seven point seven, and in Sydney, a dollar fifty-two point. $1.52, so they're both down about $0.04 cents on the week. Okay. So, so everything's dropping down a little bit, but as far as petrol goes and fuel goes, that's not well, a bad thing. Investments are dropping down and your fuel's dropping down. Yes, okay. We so, won't go into so that too far. So we won't go into that. <laughs> okay. So, but when, when, so people are probably going to start finishing up on the 19th, I think, because the Christmas is on the Tuesday. Yes, okay, Tuesday. so it's a I'm few days before yeah, Christmas. Yeah, so most people I seem to be talking about is going to finish on work on the Friday, so that's probably when the, the fuel prices will go up, you reckon? 
Mm, okay. All right. <laughs> and this is your prediction. No, this that's time. your prediction. I see. And uh, Stephen Pritchard giving us the good oil this week. Uh, Grain Corp. Now, there are competing takeover offers. That sounds as though it could be good for um, shareholders. Uh, yeah. Grain Corp uh, was, an was owned by the uh, Grain Growers Association. Of course, the farmers sold that, um, like they sold the milk. Uh, uh, the milk. Uh, processing companies. So now there's a couple of competing interests. There was a takeover offer of Grain Corp about $12 a few years ago. And now someone's come along with a, an offer of $10 a share. And there's also a previous offer of about $9.30, I think. Um, so those two offices, offers are coming. Uh, the Grain the grain Goers Association is concerned about the offers. Well, you know, once again, it's the same issue with the milk process. If the grain, the farmers have owned these companies and they've sold them. So you know, the shareholders will just take the highest offer. They're not going to be concerned about the, the, the farmers. And if the farmers were so concerned, they shouldn't have sold them to start with. Mm. You know? Yeah, a bit late for them yeah, to Yeah, it's a bit late now. to start complaining. Yeah. About, I mean, if they want to come up with a competing offer, I'm sure the shareholders will accept that. So you'd expect that one of these offers, Grain Growers, a Grain Corp's going to change hands. And mm. uh, we're at $10 at the moment. So opening round, you know, probably, probably get up a few more dollars before the final offer's on the table. Yeah. Yes, and shareholders might be smiling. Shareholders might be smiling. <laughs> if farmers aren't, yes. Well, you know, well, farmers let's... can buy them back. Oh. Um, and uh, the, the new AMP CEO started this week. Um, yep. Apparently he's been going around and interviewing some of the existing management uh, at, at AMP and he's not happy with the responses, um, which isn't surprising. Um, and he's confirmed the sale that the life insurance business is sold. Uh, there's nothing can be done about it. So despite all the shareholders jumping up and down, I, I suspect that transaction is going to go ahead and uh, mm-hmm. nothing can really be Mm. done unless it falls over in the due diligence period, I imagine. So that might be a case where the shareholders don't actually have the final say. <laughs> well, there is this argument they should have gone to a vote of shareholders because uh, it represents 45% of AMP's assets and yes. they're trying to say it's not significant. Mm. Um, in the meantime, ACCC is... Yeah, well, this doesn't surprise me. TPG? Um, yeah, this yeah. doesn't surprise me with my personal experience with TPG. Um, so apparently TPG has been charging people for services that haven't been provided. And uh, and it amounts to many tens of millions of dollars. And uh, I assume the ACCC has asked them to repay it and they've refused. So the ACCC is now, now um, taking them to court. And there'll be, uh, if the, assuming the ACCC wins, um, there's, there's talk about tens of millions of dollars have to be repaid. Plus, then there'll be significant penalties on it. Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not surprised. I mean, they were around here. They were continuing to charge for the copper wire service, even though you'd switched across to the MBN. And, and you know, oh, it took me ages to get that money back. They kept making excuses. Uh-huh. So it doesn't surprise me they've been doing this. Okay, they've been caught. They've been caught because mm. they did tell me that no one else had complained. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nobody else realised, perhaps. Yeah. Now the reject shoppers had yeah, a take so, off so, as well. Um, Jeraminda, who is the proprietor of Pact Group, which is also a solicitor, has made a takeover for Reject Shop. Now, Reject Shop is that discount um, shop that sells all sorts of bits and pieces and bargains. And um, you would have thought in these times that the sales would actually be going up, but they've actually been going down. Um, the Reject Shop price has come off uh, significantly, and Jeraminda's stepped in and made an offer for it. Um, the board's come out and said it's too cheap. Um, 
that's not unusual on first-round offers. So I think we'll just sit back and see what happens here. So if you've got some reject shop shares, I wouldn't be in rushing in to sell them at this moment. Mm, okay, so they might go down before they go up, if they go up. <laughs> I think they'll go up a bit. Well, uh, well who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think they'll go up. Well, and in the meantime, the, the new Northern Beaches Hospital, the Hellscope one in Sydney. Oh, yes, this, was, this is down the road from Henry. So, so apparently there's all sorts of complaints about that. I mean, the thing's only been open you know, less than a month. Um, it's a big, it's a big um, operation running up a big hospital. It's not a little hospital. And you'd expect there would be some teething troubles. Um, the management's been, uh, some of the management's been replaced at the hospital, but it doesn't really appear to affect the healthscape share price at this like stage. Some of the major, the senior management has yeah, been, well, you know, has moved on. Has moved on or been moved on. <laughs> One of those. <laughs> One of those. But I think, you know, it's a big project. Yes, huge I mean, project. You can't just open the hospital and expect everything to <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah, it's like all businesses. You can't just open the things today. There's all sorts of things that are going to be the best plan in the world. There'll be things forgotten about. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that. So anyhow, and of course the uh, the the there's those couple of takeover offers on Hellscape as well. So we, ah, so that makes it interesting. Yeah. As so well. we might see what happens there. So obviously the people who who are bidding for Hellscape see that there's still significant value in this Northern Beaches hospital. Yes, perhaps they think they can do it better. Yes. We're looking at the market. It's our weekly market update. And 1 million subscribers, zero has counted off the 1 million mark. Yeah, so zero is this online accounting software and um, in the last week or so they've announced that uh, they've now got 1 million subscribers to the uh, their online software solution, which a number of small businesses uh, I use. Um, I mean, that's that's not just in Australia, of course. That's in the US, and they're trying to open in the UK. So, so, um, and then what they've now come out and said they'll um, they're going to try and leverage all this data that they've collected mm-hmm. um, to sell people other products. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, all of this data belongs to the actual subscribers, not to zero. Mm. So I assume they've got some consent in there that they can actually use it. Um, but of course, zero is not actually making any money. So, um, so it might have one million subscribers, but it's it's not making any money at this stage. Well, who gets the subscriptions, don't they? Yeah, yeah, but the 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 the, the costs are adding the company mainly because the large marketing spend is is um, is uh, higher than the the subscriptions coming in, making it a bit tricky for them at yeah, the moment. Okay, yeah, but I want million subscribers. The revenue must be close to six or seven hundred million dollars. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so their costs are higher than that. Yeah, yeah, gee, and Telstra. And Telstra, there's been a, there's been a bit of concern about Telstra investing all this money in the five G network, particularly since the five G network's being um, being set up before the five G handsets were even available. So what it's come out and said this week that um, that they're going to be charging more for five G access mm-hmm. to customers mm-hmm. now. I'm not quite sure how they're going to actually do that because if you if you go to your handset now, and you've got a four, most people have a four G handset, but lots of places where you're supposed to get a four G uh, signal, you're only really getting a three G one, and it shows on your handset. Mm. So I, I don't quite understand how they're going to do this. So you're going to go into a five G area, and then if you move out because you're moving along the road or, or whatever, um, is the price going to drop? Or, or how is it going to be? I mean, it just seems logistically very difficult to do all this to me. So anyhow, we'll we'll see what happens there. Yes, indeed. Because you, you can often be talking on the 4G and it'll change to 3G. 
Yes, yes. Yeah, and you, you, you can still hear what's going on, but presumably you don't have the same yeah, capacity. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Your data down, downloads speeds change. Yeah. So I don't know how they're going to do that. Oh, it'll be interesting. And um, then, of course, Bingo, which was a, a bingo, which was a um, very flavour of the month load or 12 months ago probably. Um, short sellers are selling that. A number of investors are sceptical about its continued growth prospects and predominantly because um, basically they take these the majority of their businesses in um, taking away building site rubble um, there's concerns that the uh, uh, the environmental protection authorities um, in, enhancing the regulation regulations in respect to what's actually getting tipped into the buildings into the landfills from the building site and what actually is it contained such as asbestos and any other toxic Yes. Materials. Um, so the EPA is stepping up that, and there's also concern about the the founding shareholders might sell some of their existing shares off, um, and there's also further concern that the acquisition they've made, um, the ACCC is starting to look at that as to whether they've got undue market influence. So all those things are coming together, and the share price is falling on Bingo. Hmm. Oh, bingo. 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 Yeah, it's such a nice-looking thing, isn't it? Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> bingo. Yeah. yeah, I call it bingo. Our so. market update on 2NURFM's Thursday Finance. Today we're joined by Mandy Barton, who is from Centrelink's Financial Information Services, and Stephen Pritchard. We're going to talk about downsizing. Yeah. I mean, what we mean by downsizing is basically people are, are changing their houses. I think sometimes downsizing is not really the right term, but that's what people use. Changing their houses and how that affects um, their their pension and what sort of accommodation they, they're going into after they change their house. Now, this, this can be quite complex and um, Centrelink runs, because one of our clients rang me up and I said they need to go along to this that Centrelink seminar they have on this specific type of thing and then book an appointment with the person there because it's it's very complex area and you know we're just going to give a general outline on this so don't run off and change your transactions without going along to the, the financial information service at Centrelink. Is that right Mandy? That's very, very good information there, Stephen. <laughs> so they actually came back to me after I sent them along there and they said it was very good. Oh, that's good. They said good they feedback. had a very nice lady there. Yeah. And that must have been Mandy. Oh, could have been um, one, of a col- one of my colleagues as well. Yeah, they couldn't remember the name. Yeah. But, yeah. but you do have quite a few of yeah. those seminars. We do, yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, so when someone sells their home, how does the sale, and this is the most important thing, how does the sale proceeds impact their pension? Okay, so that primarily depends on their intention when they sell their home. So if a person is selling their home with the intention of buying another home, we do have an asset test exemption rule that can apply. So basically the primary home, a person's principal home is an exempt asset under social security law. So if they're planning to sell that home with to buy a new home, then whilst the cash is in transition between the old and the new home, an asset test exemption applies to up to the amount of the sale proceeds that are to be allocated to the new home. So very important to note there, if you sell your home for 600000 and you're planning to purchase a new home, which is you're only looking to spend 500000 then the asset test exemption will apply to the 500000 that's allocated toward the new home. Okay, uh, the other hundred thousand in that example would be considered an asset immediately. 
but the income test will apply to all the income on the whole process. That's exactly right. So the amount, because the amount is cash and that cash can be invested and generate income, the deeming rules apply to the full proceeds immediately upon settlement. So in that example I used, that whole $600,000 would be assessed under the deeming rules if it were placed in a savings account, for example. And so is there a time period in which you've got to buy the new home? So the exemption applies for up to 12 months generally, that asset test exemption. There is provision for that exemption to be extended in certain circumstances only, and it's where there are delays in purchasing your new home that are beyond your control. So that extension is commonly used for people who may be building. So when you're right. building, there can be delays with your land registering, um, with weather, you know, the builders, you know, general delays when you're building a house. So it can be extended for a maximum um, of two years in total. But you'd actually have to enter in the contract. You couldn't just say that oh, I was going to build and haven't got round to it yet. There is a little bit of discretion to use in that extension rule. And if you've been making extensive efforts to purchase a home and you haven't found one and you've got a good history of, you know, you've been dealing with an agent, you've viewed multiple houses, then there is a possibility that it can be extended. But if that um, searching started 11 months after you sold, then, you know, the chances of an extension are not really um, going, it's not really going to happen because you haven't been making an effort during that whole 12-month period. So what you really need to do is keep some evidence of what you've done. Absolutely. Okay? If, yeah. you, if you're really looking for that perfect home and it um, is not sort of coming up quickly, keep details of the agents you're dealing with, the properties you've viewed and so on. So then, so then you go and buy your house and, and it's for a different amount than you previously said. So you say that the, you, you, you sold your house for 600 You've told someone like you're going to buy the new one for five, and you end up buying it for four fifty mm-hmm. or five fifty. What happens to your pension then? What happens to your pension once you've purchased the new home is just totally dependent on what money you've freed up. Okay. So, is there any additional capital? In which case, that will increase your income and asset position, and depending on your overall position, may decrease your pension. But for some people, they sell their home with the intention of downsizing, but in reality, the cost might actually be higher than what mm-hmm. they receive for the old home yep. because they're buying a you know, a brand new place, low maintenance. So they might have to dip into their own capital as well. Um, so in those instances, potentially they may have a small increase to their pension if they've used some of their own capital as well as the sale proceeds from the former home. So basically once they buy the new home, the whole pension thing's recalculated on the assets at that time. Yes, absolutely. So we'll do a full reassessment. The customer must notify within 14 days of settlement of the sale of their um, previous home, and then they need to notify again within 14 days of the settlement on the purchase of their new home. And at both times, there'll be a full reassessment of their entitlement, taking into account both the income test and the asset test, and then, of course, we pay them under whichever test pays them less each time. And I assume if you're taking advantage of this exemption you don't get the additional non-homeowner pension payment? No, because it, it's basically just your home um, converting to cash and then becoming a new home. So you're still considered a homeowner during that transition process. Okay, we'll come back and talk a bit more about this. Centrelink has some great rules, <laughs> but also, of course, it's good to know what they are. Thursday Finance and Stephen Pritchard, we have a special guest today, Mandy Barton. We're talking about selling your home and how that might affect your Centrelink pension. So what happens if you sell your house um, and then you think you're going to buy a new one, but then you change your mind and decide to rent at some stage before the year's up? What happens then? Okay, so when someone sells their home in that 
potentially that initial intention is to buy another home. It's very important to note that people during that transition of selling and potentially buying, they actually are eligible for rent assistance. So if they do have to pay private rent, uh, they can apply for rent assistance during that transition. Now, at some point during that 12 months, if they make the decision, we're not going to buy, we want to rent permanently, we like this lifestyle, they need to get in touch with Centrelink and advise that they no longer have an intention to purchase a home. They will at that point in time be changed to non-homeowners and the changes that apply then, the asset thresholds increase, their money would be fully asset tested immediately. So again, it can certainly alter their rate of entitlement going forward. Right. And then so buying a new house I mean, or buying a new home, there's various things that are homes these days, which is even homes are becoming more complex. So then there's these so-called lifestyle villages and retirement villages, um, and they're all on different sorts of ownership structures or rental structures. Um, so how do they, they all kind of work together or... Yeah, so there's so many different retirement communities popping up now, and it's certainly a growth area in Australia with our ageing population. Uh, From a Centrelink perspective, we need to look at what type of community, what type of arrangement it is under which they've um, purchased or leased um, the property to determine how we're going to assess them from a Centrelink point of view. So these different retirement communities are governed by different acts of legislation, and that ultimately will determine how Centrelink treat these customers going forward. So you need to you need to get specific advice on the particular retirement village or lifestyle village you're going into. Yeah, you need to understand what exactly is it I'm moving into. Am I moving into a manufactured home village? Am I moving into a retirement village? And, you know, it's a really important part of that is sort of planning ahead and looking at, you know, how is this going to impact my income in, in retirement, you know? And, and if Centrelink age pension is a part of your income, then you really need to look at that before you make those big decisions. And what about these things that are becoming increasingly popular where you, where you where you, you buy a, a manufactured home or a, or a transportable home or whatever they're called this week, and then you put it in a caravan park, or which is now called um, a lifestyle park, and you, you pay site fees... Um, how does that all work for um, Centrelink purposes? So generally speaking, these are what they call land lease communities. Um, so people p- purchase a manufactured or a relocatable home and then they pay site fees to lease that land. So if the property is if that property is governed under the Residential Land Lease Communities Act, um, which was previously called the Residential Parks Act, the amount they paid to purchase the dwelling is irrelevant. So whether their manufactured home costs them 300000 or if it's a caravan, that cost them 30000 That's irrelevant. If they own the dwelling, they're classified as a homeowner under Social Security law, which means the homeowner asset thresholds apply. Um, but because it's a land lease community, they are eligible to apply for rent assistance based on the site fees they pay to lease that land. Oh, okay. So if they're paying site fees, they get rental assistance. They do. They're homeowners who do qualify for rent assistance when they are in those manufactured home villages. And what about retirement villages? So they're different again. They are. They are very different. So retirement villages are governed by the New South Wales Retirement Villages Act. When a person moves into a retirement village, they generally purchase a 99-year lease, is, mm-hmm. is most common around here, um, and they pay an entry contribution. So the amount they pay for that entry contribution determines how Centrelink assess them for home ownership status. So 
if they pay below something we call the extra allowable amount, mm-hmm. which is the difference between the homeowner and the non-homeowner asset threshold, um, if they pay less than that, they're considered non-homeowners. If they pay equal to or above that, um, well, it's actually... Stop me there. It's actually equal to or less, they're non-homeowners, or above that, they're homeowners. If they're non-homeowners, they can qualify for rent assistance based on their maintenance fees. But if they're homeowners, they don't qualify for rent assistance. So it does cause this issue occasionally with people who live in retirement villages. People pay different amounts to enter at different stages. The determination of rent assistance is made at the time they enter based on the amount they pay at entry and what the extra allowable amount was at that time. So it's quite possible to have people living in the same village where some people are eligible for rent assistance and others aren't. Okay, so once it's determined when they enter, that's basically it. It's determined at entry, that's correct. so that stays in place till they leave. Absolutely. Okay. So what happens if other people move in with the with with the family? What happens there? Well, I guess it depends. You know, there's so many different arrangements now with people um, purchasing property. So, you know, if they decide to buy houses together with other people, we need to look at, you know, are they buying a property as joint tenants, as tenants in common? Have there been any gifting? Mm-hmm. Um, are there any gifting issues raised? Sometimes people might say, I'm buying a house with my child. The child's going on the title, but they're contributing a lot more than the child's contributing. So therefore, if they're not getting recognition of what they've paid, there could be some gifting implications in that. Okay, so what this really says to me is you need to go and talk to the financial information service prior to actually doing anything. Absolutely. Work out what you want to do, make an appointment with the financial information service down at Centrelink and, and go in and talk to them about how you're going to end up if you do what you want. Yeah, talk when we can talk through the options and give them a really good idea of you know what will happen if. Good. And you're always happy to do that. And there are seminars. Will the seminars help in that too? We do run a seminar, as Stephen mentioned, on accommodation options for older mm. people. Um, so our seminar program will kick off again in the new year and people can find that on our website. And we'll find out more about that and Centrelink things from you too, I hope, in yes. the new year, Mandy Barton. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, Stephen Pritchard. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.